Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us. We ask that you would fill each and every one of us. Speak to us this morning. Jesus, empower me. Speak through me. Build up your body, the church. And encourage us as we go on our week. Thank you for your word to us. It is life. It is the truth. And as we were reminded in our Sunday school, you, your word are an anchor to us. So be glorified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. We're going to continue our series on what the Bible says about, and we've been talking about a concept called total depravity. <clears throat> and you get your Bibles out, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13 this morning. This is really the first passage of Scripture that talks about um, Genesis chapter 6, this concept of total depravity. Now, what do we mean by total depravity? Basically, that we are corrupted by our sin. So the, the very, our most righteous deeds, our most righteous acts are um, tainted. They're filthy rags. So Genesis chapter 6, in the very beginning, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Well, unlike last week, this is a much easier passage to understand and interpret. We're not talking about angels and demons and cohabitating with women and Nephilim and stuff like that. And the point in this passage is very clear. The judgment of God will fall soon on sinful humanity and in a very catastrophic way. It is so severe that it is described later on, we will read, as blotting out man from the face of the earth. God will literally wipe out the human race because it is so thoroughly wicked. And it is the wickedness that is highlighted here in verses 5 through 13. Now keep in mind that the wickedness includes that which we already saw in verses 1 through 4. 
that was last week, that the people of the first society, they were so wicked that they willingly engaged in perverse sexual union with demons. They did this most likely because they believed an old lie that they could be like God, they could escape the curse of death, and they would live eternally. This is a startling in and of itself, and it's made worse because the people actually had an, an, an actual eyewitness. Adam was alive for those nine, for, he lived to be nine and three years old, and in 1656 the flood came. So for over half of those years of the first society, Adam was alive, and he would have told them what the Garden of Eden was like. What paradise was like before he met Satan. He would have warned them of the folly of listening to Satan and to demons. And yet we find that in spite of Adam's testimony, they chose evil. Man is so depraved that rather than pursuing God, he is pursuing demons. In verse 5, we read the first major description of the doctrine of total depravity. And there are four points that the text reveals that we're just going to follow along this morning. The first one is that the Lord saw. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now what does it mean in the text that it says that the Lord saw? Well, it means that God is omniscient, and that he is fully aware at all times. The great wickedness of man, keep this in mind, folks, it does not surprise him as if he saw something that he had not prior seen. This didn't take him by surprise. He was fully aware of all that was going on all the time. And that tells you something about the patience of God, doesn't it? Do you remember Hebrews 4.13? It says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. I put this up here for us. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When we're alone, is there not a greater temptation at times to sin? And why? Because nobody's there to see it. But is that true? No, it is not. This verse also introduces a contrast. Just listen to this. In Genesis one thirty one, we read this. This is the, the, the summing up of all God's creation. God saw that all he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, it's the same word we use in Genesis 6-5 for the word saw. <clears throat> God had created a utopian environment for man to thrive. At this time, the earth had a temperate climate. We believe that there were no harsh seasonal changes, no wind, rain, or snow. The terrain was gentler, with greater flatland surfaces. There were abundant plants and animals covering the earth. And physically, there was a, within the human body a pristine purity in the human genetic system. And in its bloodstream was limited accumulated mutant genes. People were healthier. They were physically stronger than we have ever seen or have ever been, have ever seen, and really will ever know. That's why they lived hundreds of years. 
And because of their long life and intelligence, they were very skilled to a level we probably cannot comprehend. And what does man do with all of those advantages? We just read it. Despite all these benefits, just five chapters later, in Genesis 6, it's very bad. We've gone from very good to very bad. And Arizona Christian University, they have a, um, at their campus there, a cultural research center that does an annual American worldview inventory. And in 2020, they found that the vast majority of Americans, 69%, said people are basically good. In other words, as a whole, people are generally well-intentioned, but crippled by an unfavorable environment that is filled with debilitating circumstances. And what we think, and this is a lie, that if we provide taxpayer-funded education, we distribute or dispense welfare, we remove moral restrictions, basically we try and provide a near-stress-free environment that mankind will somehow become noble and live up to that basic goodness that we all have within us. But if you just read the first six chapters of Genesis and turn on the nightly news, it exposes the belief that man is basically not good. It's a deceptive lie to think that we are basically good. <laughs> I wrote a joke here. In fact, I would suggest that people who believe that man is basically good have never raised children. Amen to that. <laughs> Children do not have to be taught how to be bad. They have to be taught how to be good. Genesis 6, 5 says that it's not man's behavior that is the problem, though. Man's behavior is simply the symptom. Man's problem is that in his nature it is corrupted by sin. Look at the last half of verse 5. Every intent, that means the word intent there, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, until you deal with the root of the problem, nothing will change. You might remember this story. If not, this is, it just fits so well here. I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, Erica, was it Parker Street was the first home or Pearl Street? Parker Street. 913 Park. Nine thirteen Parker Street, first home that we bought when we lived in Bowling Green, Ohio, and it was an older home. And one day, uh, well, you had to go for this like eight hundred nine square foot home to do laundry. You had to go out the back screen door and down to the the little basement type cellar, and that's where the laundry was. Okay, and so um, yeah, it wasn't nice doing it in the rain or in the cold weather, but that's where it was. Well. My wife comes up one day and says that there's water leaking into this little cellar, this little basement. I said, okay. Being the man of the house, which is another way of saying I'm absolutely clueless on what this problem is, but I'm going to come across as if I know what the problem is so I can fix it and look good to my wife. I went downstairs, saw that she was living in reality. Yes, there's water coming down in there. So I went upstairs and opened the, the, underneath this kitchen sink, didn't see any water there, and thought, okay, it must be the roof, and looked up on the roof, and it was a... It was a little bit of a flatter roof that had a, a um, rubber, rubber roof. And um, so what do you do? 
well, I can't fix it. So I go to the phone book at that time, and you call uh, through a friend, uh, someone that does this work, like, like a handyman or whatever, and they came, and, and what did they do? They came in the house, they went down to the basement, saw the water coming through, went upstairs to the kitchen, opened the, the, the kitchen doors, or the cabinet doors, looked underneath there, saw no water was coming from the faucet, went up on the roof, saw it was, and felt it was spongy, and says, you need a new roof. But you shouldn't have me do it. You can claim insurance on this. Just pay your deductible. All right, I'll do that. So I, I called the insurance company. They sent their guy out. Okay? They went down to the basement, saw the water. They went under the kitchen sink, opened it up. They went up, felt the roof was spongy, said it's coming from above. You need a, a new roof. They sent their guy out because that was just the adjuster. He came out. What did he do? He went down to the basement. He went underneath the sink, opened it up, saw no water there, saw a roof was spongy, need a new roof. Okay. So they came over, and they brought all their construction people and everything, and they put on a new roof, and they brought all these fans, and they put them downstairs to blow out and to dry out the basement where this water was leaking. Okay. And this was a long process as we were going through all of this. And you've never been through something like this before with uh, whatever problem it is and uh, going through insurance and so on. And it just takes a while. And so there's just, you know, fans blowing everything to dry and dry stuff out. We get this new rubber roof uh, and everything. And then we're all done. And, and they're happy and I'm happy. And this is good. And the next day, my wife comes upstairs from doing the laundry and says, there's water in the basement. <laughs> Thankfully, um, I, you have to give her dad credit. He, Erica's father, and he hasn't been here too often, but he has a, a, a spike when it comes to fixing things in his intelligence. He's, I never met anyone like him. He can just see things and fix them. He didn't go down in the basement. He didn't go up to the roof. He simply opened the cabinet doors, took a paper towel, wrapped it around the pipe, and left it there. He came back two minutes later and saw that the pipe was wet. Unwrapped the, the paper towel, took a wrench, turned it, put the paper towel next to the pipe again, around the pipe. Came back a couple minutes later, the paper towel was dry. All it was, it needed, all it needed was a turn of a wrench on a pipe that was below the kitchen sink. Yeah, I had to pay the deductible. But my point was, was this. All of those contractors and all of those insurance specialists, they misdiagnosed the problem. See, they only treated the symptoms, right? They never got to what I call the heart of the problem, which was a simple leak from a connection underneath the kitchen sink. And this is the problem... For humanity, This is where our problems begin and end. This is what the text says about us. That the, the heart, the human heart, it is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, Genesis 6-5 speaks of the heart. And notice what it says. When we think of the heart, we think of emotion in our culture. But to the Hebrew, the term heart rendered the, the, the seat of thinking. And it became very clear to God that the very seed of thought, the very root of all, the heart, it was only evil continually. And he was seeing this all the time. 
and just how evil had man become, look at the word intent for a moment. It's related to a verb, a word to a Greek verb that means formed. God looked into the heart of man and saw that every formed thought, every thought, every image, every idea, every ideology, every thought pattern, every philosophy, every belief, all of it was what? Only evil continually. And to put it another way, every human being is at heart a sinner unable to form anything in himself that is not wicked. This extends even to our righteous deeds. We are like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And this is exactly what Jesus taught. And this point is so important for Jesus that he calls a crowd that had surrounded him back to himself. And he says this, look at this. And he called the crowds to him again. He says, this is so important. Come listen to me again. Come back here, come back here. And he said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. In other words, if you get a tattoo, is that going to defile you? But there are people who believe that if you get a tattoo, it's wrong. I suggest to you that they don't understand their Bible. If you smoke, can that defile you? It may not be the wisest thing. Can you drink? It may not be the wisest thing. Any food you eat, he in essence said all foods then are what in this passage? Clean. Okay? But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Our problem is not what's outside of us. It's not our environment. It's not the way we were treated as a child or that we were abused or misunderstood or weren't loved or were deprived. That's not the problem. There isn't anything outside of you coming into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. And what comes out of your heart? Well, the text goes on to say this. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. You can see all of those. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And what happens when all the forming and devising that goes on in the heart is only evil continually is that behavior becomes corrupt and violence eventually breaks out. And we know that the earth, as we just read, was filled with violence at this time. And the word for violence literally means the abuse of other people. It's general lawlessness that impacts other people. It's described by this way, and I like this. It's the dictionary of Old Testament words. It means, violence means cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often making use of physical violence and brutality. That was the environment of the first society. And folks... The flood didn't change it. The eight righteous people of Noah's family brought that with them to the post-flood society. In Genesis 8.21, after the flood, God says this, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done.
So it still existed, and it still exists today. And to make this point unmistakably clear, God reemphasizes his point on human depravity in Genesis 6, 11 to 12. Look at those two, two verses. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. I mean, he's making this point over and over again. And the earth was filled with what? Violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And we know what some of that corruption was, which is verses 1 through 4. Demons cohabitating with the daughters of men. That's what the Lord saw. And he saw that for years. And that's what he still sees, right? Some things never change. That's what the Lord saw. This is what the Lord felt. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. This verse is a window into the heart of a troubled creator. It reveals an awful lot about God. And I kind of, I'm amazed at the Lord's first response. I'm amazed that his first response wasn't righteous anger. It would have been my response. Now the word sorry here means sadness. This tells us that God can feel, and he felt the disappointment of the humans, or he felt the disappointment of the horrors that occurred since he had made the glories of that pure, pristine Eden. God was not rejoicing that finally he could give humanity what it deserved. It was a sad thing to have to judge the world the way it would have to be judged. That's why he's full of sorrow. And part of that sorrow is not just over the condition of man, but over the fact that God must do what he must do. It had gotten so bad, he had to do this. See, Ezekiel 8 says this, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than he should turn from his ways and live? But rather that man repent and live. Jesus weeps over the coming judgment of Jerusalem. Remember this? When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known then this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. In other words, I've had enough of you, Israel. I'm going to blind you. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And it, if you live like the first society, in other words, they didn't recognize that their king had come. And he talks about the destruction of, of Jerusalem, and it's a prophecy here that would happen roughly 30 plus, 30, 30 40 years later. If you live like the first society, you reject God's offer of salvation. God has no choice but to bring his judgment for your sin. Why? Because his holiness demands a righteous response. And that grieves him. And because God is immutable, meaning he does not change, 
This, that is the reason why he will not change his mind, and that is why he is sad. This is why God later says he was sorry he made man on the earth. He knows what the judgment will bring. He knows the pain, the suffering. And this passage also reminds us that God is sovereign and that man is still responsible. That's what the Lord felt. So the Lord saw, the Lord felt, and finally the Lord said. Or next, the Lord said. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, God repeats that he is sorry he has made man because he knows the devastating judgment for sin that his holiness demands he must bring upon them. Again, a reminder, he had given that first society 1,500 plus years to repent, and they rejected him. The act of sexually uniting with demons was the last straw, and he'd run out of patience. And if you notice, the judgment God is about to bring is not limited to humanity. You see that? It includes animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. Now, it doesn't include, obviously, the fish in the sea, because he was going to destroy the, wa- the earth by water. But to all land animals, the judgment of God would fall. Why did the animals have to perish? Because as the leader goes, so goes the nation. And the wicked kings of Israel were judged by God. Even innocent people suffered. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Remember that? They were innocent. They suffered. Man had been given dominion over the earth. And if he falls, the earth falls. So in regards to man, God says that he will blot out man from the face of the earth. Now what does that mean? It's really kind of spectacular when you understand it. The word blot out means to remove something off of something else. It, come, it carries with the idea of erasing something. I'll just listen to this. I'm going to explain some detail with the help of science, so stick with me here, about what it means to blot out something. Now, we know that God was about to drown his creation in a worldwide flood. Okay? Noah at this time doesn't know it, but we know it, looking back. And as the waters in the earth were released from below and the rain fell from above, the water levels rose, it says, to 15 cubits over the tallest mountain. All the humans and animals and creeping things, land animals or animals that have the breath of life that need oxygen, they were drowned. The birds of the sky were drowned either by the constant rain falling or they simply drowned from exhaustion because they can't fly forever, right? What happens to land animals and humans when we drowned? Well, they bloat, and then they what? Float. The bloat and float principle. And then they begin to fall apart as seawater, bacteria, and the scavengers of the sea shred them. And the corpses that were not taken by the sea, when the water subsided, would disintegrate rapidly as they lay on the ground. And this leads to the question, if the human population that was destroyed by the flood was in the billions as we think it was, and then you add all the animals and creeping things and birds, shouldn't there be billions of bones discovered by paleontologists 
in the earth's strata, right? Now, let me explain to you. Here's a picture of the earth's strata, because it's been years since I studied geology at all. And this is a basic, simple picture of what the earth's strata is. Can you see that? Okay, so it's an artist's rendering, but here's obviously where we live. Okay, and this is what we're trying to get rid of, apparently. <laughs> and we need it, all right? Then you get this first level here, and, you know, we can see that outside. Then I don't even know what alluvium is, but then underneath that's the fresh water. I don't know what a confined layer is. The oil reserves, and you can see the gas reservoirs and so on. Each individual layer is what we call a strata, okay? Now, to me, because I like food, I wrote, it looks like a layered cake, because I must have been hungry when I wrote this, right? It looks like a layered cake. One layer placed on top of another layer, and so on. But that, folks, is not how strata is formed. It takes great force moving kind of side to side like this, okay? And it, it, it creates the earth's strata. And this force, moving like this, okay, would crush and disintegrate certain elements that lay within, namely the bones of mans and animals and some fish. This is what happened during the flood. God is blotting out all mankind. Well, still, shouldn't there be massive amounts of bones in the sediment, which was the mud that was flowing rapidly during the flood? And what science has discovered is that, this is the science part, 95% of all fossils that have been found, do you know what they are? They're marine fossils. Shellfish, like clams and corals, etc. Why? Well, because they have what? hard shells that can survive. Out of the remaining 5%, so you have 95% of marine animals, out of the remaining 5%, 95% of that 5% are algae and plant fossils. And now we're at 99.75% of all fossils. When we have 0.25% left, 95% of the 0.25% are insects, the creeping things. Okay? And now we have 0.0125% left. And that amount accounts for the bones of mammals. But there's also this. If you, did I put this up here? Yes. For when they maintain this, Peter writes, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at the time was destroyed being flooded with water. It says the world was formed out of water and by water. Read Genesis 1, the creation, first, first day and second day. And we'll actually get into this, so I'm going to go over this with everybody in a few weeks. But during the flood, the world was being formed once again. Did you know that? There are three earths. The first earth, a reforming and the second earth, which we live in now, and when, when is the third one coming? When he comes again, exactly. Now this would mean that the world Noah saw when he stepped out of the ark was very different from the world he knew when he entered the ark. Because the phrase, being flooded, as it says up there, it's actually translated cataclysmic. Cataclysmic. When the world was destroyed by a flood, it was a cataclysmic event. And one of the cataclysmic events that happened was massive mudslides that trapped bodies of man and animals and fish in them. 
But since the bones of men and animals have a low fossilization potential as compared to fish, we don't find many bones of humans and animals. A case in point happened in Los Angeles not too many years ago. They're, they're digging to build a new subway. You can look this up if you want. They unearthed a few mastodons and mammoths and a horse. But they also discovered the fossils of over 2,000 fish. Now, where in the world would you have 2,000 fish, some mammoths, some mastodons, and a horse all together in one place? What? No way, right? So these land animals and fish found together indicate they were probably caught in a massive landslide, right, mudslide, caused by the flood. We know that what happened after the flood was what? Because of all the water that was released, it was an ice age, okay, that followed the flood. But the key point here is, is there just weren't that many bones of, of, of animals, of mammals. Why? They have a low fossilization potential, yes, but why? They were blotted out. They were ground out. God blotted them out. He erased them. That, my folks, that's a severe judgment for sin, is it not? This is why we don't have much information about the first society. We simply cannot find the bones of these people or much about their life because it's all been blotted out. We'll get into this in, in more detail when we look at the flood. But folks, there is hope, and that's the last point that the Lord gave. I love this. Look at verses 8 and 10. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. He walked with God. He had sons. Well, how did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord to the point that he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. While this speaks to Noah's character to live such a life in that wicked and evil society, folks, Noah was not sinless. All you have to do is go to Genesis 9 and you find sin raising its ugly head again and through Noah. So how did he find favor from God? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. I wanted to put this up for you. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, that was verse 13 that we just read. In reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Simply put, Noah believed what God had said. As we look at the life of Noah, you'll find out no one doesn't say anything. God speaks and he obeys. This is not Moses. When God speaks, what does Moses do? He questions, okay? He questions. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Just like Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, so did Noah. He walked by faith in the words of God. We know that because what did he do right after this? He began to build an ark. And he preached a message that made no sense to people. God's going to destroy the world with rain. Rain didn't exist. Here he was out in the middle of a desert building a boat. 
that made absolutely no sense, okay? And he preached the coming judgment of God for 120 years. And God would use Noah to give the people of the first society time to repent. Peter tells us that God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And do you remember what I said last week in Genesis 6-3? The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And that means that God gave that first society 120 years to repent. How? Through the preaching of Noah. Just as God warned Noah of the coming cataclysmic flood, so Noah warned that society, and sadly no one listened to Noah's preaching. How do we know that? Only eight people survived the flood. But God is gracious. He gave those people time. Not only was there 120 years of the faithful preaching of Noah, there was also growing up alongside the secular society, the sacred society, the people that worshiped God, that called upon the name of the Lord. And they would testify with the Spirit, calling people to repentance, but the people would not believe. They perish in judgment, but not God's people. And this is key. God always knows who belongs to him in the midst of any judgment. And God always warns Remember earlier I had referenced Luke 19? That this was our Lord's triumphal return to Jerusalem. And what was meant to be a joyous occasion for the coming of their king, the king of the Jews, instead was met with weeping from Jesus in a pronouncement of judgment. Again, verses 43 and 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is referencing the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. History tells us when the Jews revolted against Rome, actually it began in AD 66, but they revolted against Rome, they built a barricade, Rome did, around, literally they built a barricade and it was burned down. Then they built another barricade and they put soldiers there and they built it and they laid siege for five months. And as Jesus prophesied, the Romans built a barricade around the walls of Jerusalem and eventually overpowered the weakened, starving Jews and Roman soldiers rampaged through Jerusalem, slaughtering everybody, children, women, adults, except the strongest young men, which they kept for gladiatorial games. And Jesus says that they killed what? The children within you. Pregnant women were killed. Okay? They destroyed the city, everything, except the western wailing wall. Hundreds of thousands of people literally were slaughtered. And the Jewish historian Josephus writes this. says, while the sanctuary was burning, meaning the temple, neither pity for age nor request for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, lady and priest alike were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the highest towers and a portion of the wall on the west. All the rest of the wall was so completely raised as to leave future visitors to the spot. No reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. 
the remaining stones that were left cry out to God and speak of his judgment. A judgment for sin. And it was a sin of unbelief, of rejecting their king. They did not recognize the day that he visited. But folks, God warned the people at the start of the revolt in AD 66. Did you know this? The leaders of the Jerusalem church were advised in a vision to flee the city. God spoke to them in dreams and visions. And they've told this to everybody. Because the Jerusalem, the pious Jews, considered the Christian flight out of Jerusalem as an act of treason. And those men did not heed, those people did not heed the warning of God. They perished in the judgment of God for failing to recognize the day their king arrived. But they were warned. They were warned in this by Jesus. They were warned four years before. That's the, the, the pattern of God. He warned the first society for 120 years. He warned the, the Jews for four years. And then his judgment comes. And his judgment has to come. Because his holiness demands a righteous response. And he will not change. He will not change. He is immutable. May we heed the warnings of God about a future judgment that awaits this earth. The first earth perished by water. The second earth will perish by fire. All the elements will will disappear and melt away in a fervent heat, Peter says. Thus, knowing this judgment is coming for the same reason it came to that first society, for sin, judgment will come again in the end for sin, and it will not be stopped. God will not change. Therefore, while we are alive today, live our lives accordingly. In holiness and fear of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen to that. So meditate on that this week, these 13 verses. Let me pray and we'll close. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. It's not a, a fun word, but nonetheless, it's still an applicable word to us. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to you, growing ever exponentially growing, it seems like, in wickedness and corruption. Thank you for giving us your spirit that enables us to live a different life. And indeed, may our lives be different. May we be light in a very dark world. May we salt and add flavor and preservation to a decaying society. This we ask in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.